Hello, everyone, and once again, welcome back to the Core Console RX podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. This handsome young man next to me, Cole Swanson. Cole, what's up, man? Doing great. Got our uh, special guest, the new microphone kickstands here. Whew. Fancy kickstands. Yeah. Pretty pumped about them. Yeah, these these are next level. Yeah. Like we were we were amateur hour until these things arrived. Yeah, now they have four springs on them. Yeah. Four. Four. You don't see that kind of quality just anywhere. No. Thank you, Amazon. Yes. And for everyone who's listening now instead of watching the video, you're very confused and yeah. probably turning us off immediately. Yeah. That's all right. Cole, how much longer do you have for pharmacy school? I have 18 work days. 18, 18 days. That is it. I'm not counting. So, pretty awesome. Yeah, Huge pretty accomplishment. I feel like he uh, started rotation yesterday. You were my first rotation. Yes. Have we talked about this in another podcast, or did we just discuss it recently? I don't know. Okay. Well, if you're hearing this again, it's because it's important. He was my first rotation. Yeah. And and it basically shaped the course of his life. Yeah. So Basically. Yes, the time flies. It's crazy how fast fourth year goes. Everybody dreads it. But I know. It's yeah, quick. you students out there. Third year when you're waiting for fourth year, kind of drags on. But once you get to fourth year, it's like boom, you're done. Now I'm a pharmacist, and there's actually responsibilities now. Yes, plus some money to be to be made. Yeah, so that's cool. Yeah, yeah, that's not so bad either. Definitely, definitely better than uh, living on that student loan cheddar yeah and paying to uh work that's not so great either yeah although i will say that i honestly think that that is kind of the future of the education system off topic and not that paying to work for the rest of your life is that what no 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 so right now we pay college right to go and and learn a skill or not not really a trade necessarily yeah but uh a skill, whether it's business or biology or whatever, I genuinely believe that as things progress, technology progresses, uh, education becomes more commoditized. I think that we will eventually be uh, paying to be interns places. I just feel like the way fourth year worked out and how much I learned on my fourth year, honestly, if I could pay them to do that. So you're saying cut out didactic completely? Probably not completely. Right. But, but not so much like, I mean, there's not too many other schools or at least um, colleges like let's just take our school, for instance, that have three years of didactic and then one year of clinicals. For instance, med school, two years of didactic, yeah. two years of clinical uh, PA, one year didactic, one year, three months of clinical. So pharmacists do get a lot of classroom experience for sure yeah i would i would argue that we should switch to two and two at least yeah uh, like the med school the med schools do it i would say we should do that immediately yeah as important as the base chemistry classes are in some um, realms especially i mean we are supposed to be the drug experts so we're supposed to understand all that kind of stuff but man there's there's a lot of that stuff that uh, we don't use so much and, and, and I don't think it necessarily has to go away. I think that yeah. we can keep all the basic science, um, either make them prereqs or, you know, incorporate them. But, you know, combining certain certain classes like pharmacotherapy sections and just making them as part of rotation, have a rotation. You have to take a psych rotation. You have to have a rotation on cardiology, whatever, you know, whatever it may be, and like really emphasize and learn that way. I just feel like that's 
just so much more practical and I don't know, at least for me, I'm a kinetic learner, so I'm being super biased about this, but I just feel like uh, going to two years of rotation would have just been so much more beneficial. Interesting. So you heard it here first. Mike is um, completely changing the way pharmacists are trained. Yeah. He's copywriting it. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. Registered trademark. And so now that we've spent the first five minutes kind of pontificating on what we think the future of pharmacy school is going to look like. I'm sure y'all care about that. Yeah, for sure. So uh, we're going to start a new segment, if you will. I said this last time, and we still haven't done a second. (laughs) We we start a lot of new segments. There's not normally follow-up segments to our new segment, but it's okay. Uh, But we're keeping those in our back pocket. They're, They're coming back eventually. You'll see them. I just don't know when. For instance, if we gave them catchy names, I think that we'd be more apt to bring them back. Like, I'm going to call this Graham Graham, and you're going to see why in just a second. Yes. So Not your grandma's segment. Yes. Graham Graham. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, we should definitely discuss those beforehand, too. <laughs> in that way, we don't have to improv them while we're in the recording. Okay. But, That's uh, subject to change, then. Okay. <laughs> no, I like it. So... We are going to take questions because, believe it or not, people actually will message us on via Facebook or Instagram and actually ask clinical questions. So that's pretty cool. They do. I'm I'm stunned that even more than three people listen to the podcast, let alone <laughs> take time out of their day to actually. Let alone thirty of them message us and ask us for, uh, yeah. or more specifically, Mike, because he'll nah. be the one responding for. Uh, clinical advice and um, question answers. So very impressive. Well, yeah. And as soon as you graduate, I can't wait to just push all those questions <laughs> on to you to answer I'll, them. I'll handle the emails slash Graham Brands <laughs> slash Facebook messages slash however you want to contact us. So we're going to uh, read through one of the questions we had, and maybe some of you also had this question or maybe never thought about this, but we'll give this a shot and see if it catches on. But um, I won't actually say who said it because I never asked them if this was okay to put on the you know, actual podcast. But um, Yeah, but give us permission and we'll give you a shout out. Yes, for sure. sure. And so uh, somebody asked how, um, basically they were saying that they were listening to episode four. And uh, we were talking briefly about gout treatments and some of the guidelines. Um, and the person said that there was no mention of Euloric or Febuxostat. And they said that uh, basically should we max out allopurinol and then add daily colchicine uh, versus just switching to Euloric? Um, is there any evidence where you just switch to Euloric um, from allopurinol to get uh, better efficacy? And so it was kind of interesting that they asked that question when they did because it was about a week after there was a new uh, study that was published in New England Journal of Medicine mm-hmm. that looked at allopurinol versus febuxostat and in particular they were looking at the chances of having a cardiovascular event and what they ended up finding was that a uh, febuxostat actually has a significantly increased risk of uh, cardiovascular events yeah and so compared to allopurinol yes yeah. compared directly Which to allopurinol pretty intense so it's pretty pretty crazy. Um, it's some interesting data. I had I was talking to a uh, I believe she's a PA student on um, Instagram, and she said that uh, they were listening to a two day rheumatology lecture, 
and um, the professor there, or the the guest lecturer that was talking about it, came back on the second day because the trial had just been released that morning, and um, had changed her slides and told the class how she had changed them that morning because there's some new uh, hardcore evidence out there kind of against Fabuxostat. So, pretty pretty interesting. Yeah. Plus, it's so expensive. Yeah. So it, 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 I'd be hard pressed to find a good reason to use that over allopurinol now. Yeah. Don't you I, think? I mean, I know that you don't have the the renal dose adjustments, I guess, with Fabuxostat. Right, right, which but, I guess was the benefit, just generally speaking. That's why you would choose it over allopurinol. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Right, don't really if there's an why. increased risk of harm. Yeah, so good question, unnamed Instagrammer. <laughs> yes, keep them coming. Those, yeah. are, uh, those are definitely cool. And um, we will uh, definitely make sure that uh, we... Try to get you out there if you want to have your name shout out. Sure. We will do it for sure. Or your Instagram handle. Get you some followers. If not, you will be anonymous. But, uh, yeah. So, what else, Cole? What else should we go over? Um, well, we could start with the what we're talking about today. Yeah. So, um, we're talking about bipolar today, which is a pretty fascinating topic. Mainly because I just came off of a psych rotation, so it's all fresh in my mind. So I figured I might as well dump it on you guys before uh, before I forget, right? Perfect. Um, but, of course, Mike has an equally extensive knowledge of bipolar and um, what we're going to be talking about. So, Yep, just read all about it today. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating disease. I think psych is pretty fascinating in general. But we'll do a really uh, cursory overview of bipolar and the treatment options. We'll talk um, a little more um, about specific classes of the drugs, what you can look for as far as side effects, maybe some counseling points to give first line therapies and whatnot. Um, And then we'll of course kind of define and classify the disease for you. And hopefully at some point we can go a little more in depth on maybe some of the drugs or um, some different aspects of bipolar because there's, a lot more that goes into it than just um, the treatment options. Diagnosing is um, a chore for sure because it's all subjective. You can't get an A1C or a fasting blood glucose to diagnose somebody with bipolar. You have to talk to them about their history and ask them um, way back to their childhood to see if they've ever had days where they didn't really feel the need to sleep and they still had energy to see if they were manic. So anyways, we'll get into all that. Right. Yes, for sure. Yes. And this is, you know, like Cole said, this is definitely a very brief. We'd have to do probably what forty-seven podcast yeah. episodes in a row. Maybe forty-eight. Maybe forty-eight. Yeah. Let's not be hasty. There you go. But, uh, but, but yeah, we, it would take forever to cover how in depth this is. So and neither one of us are, are psych experts. So we will kind of just touch on some of the basics, talk about some clinical pearls for some of the medications, sure. And then we will kind of build on this the next time we bring it up. Sure. Because eventually we're going to run into stuff that we can talk about. Yeah. Or will we? You know, it's always evolving. Yeah, it's true. Well, that's why we have to just keep coming back like right. bipolar we'll, disorder we'll recycle. part two. Part seven, part yes. 48. And then we'll forget what we talked about the first time. And so will y'all, so we can refresh you with a new podcast. It'll be perfect. <laughs> then we'll just keep on increasing our number of episodes. Then 30 years down the road, we'll all be experts. So just bear with us. Okay. Right, so what are we going to start? So bipolar. So... Bipolar affective disorder, there's two types. There's type 1 and type 2. I'll kind of define those. Um, but just what is bipolar generally? So used to be called manic depressive illness, and that's because it's characterized by 
uh, periods of mania and periods of depression, usually in some type of cyclic fashion. Uh, it affects, you know, a lot of aspects of these patients' lives. It kind of takes it over. Uh, it affects their mood, of course, their energy. Uh, they have trouble sleeping. Uh, they have trouble with memory and recall, various uh, cognitive def deficits. Uh, it affects their behavior, how they act towards family, puts a lot of stress on their support system. So uh, really is a pretty tough disease state. But the patients will, um, depending on what type, uh, might be manic for a while, uh, so they're very elevated, and then after the mania has subsided, they will uh, more or less crash and go into a depressive episode. Um, this can happen continuously, and they can have rapid cycling, or they could have maybe one um, event like this per year. It just kind of depends on the patient. Uh, but type 1 is going to be uh, the major depressive episodes with a manic episode, so they have a full-on manic episode, which would be um, seven days of mania with major depression. That's type one. Type two is similar. They have the major depression, but it's mostly characterized by the depression. Um, they will be hypomanic, so just mania for four days. Uh, that's kind of how you characterize the two. Some people call type one true bipolar, kind of an old term, um, but really it's, it's maybe what you would consider the more severe form because these patients... Uh, mania is more significant. Cool. So this we're going to be kind of going through the maintenance phase. So they're not necessarily in mania. Um, once you kind of get them, I guess, um, reestablished back to their baseline, now we want to talk about stabilizing their mood, making sure they're not going... Uh, deeper into depression right. or we're going back into a manic state. So that's where we're kind of at. We're talking about actual maintenance treatment. Um, so this is not something coming coming in having full-blown mania. Right. And even some of these principles do kind of apply to acute mania. Yeah. Um, it's just if they're acutely manic, it might steer you in a different direction just depending on um, what meds are maybe common that you use at your practice or the patient's side effect profile, previous drug trials, things like that. Yeah, but I, I probably should mention that um, it's not really clear how bipolar disorder works. They know that there's a genetic component. If a parent or close family member, especially immediate family member, um, has bipolar, then you are more likely to have it. Um, they're pretty sure it acts on various catecholamines, neurotransmitters, um, like norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, GABA, glutamate, um, acetylcholine, all those. Um, and the main reason they think that is because the drugs work, and that's kind of how depression is too. So uh, we'll kind of go through through those drugs and, and what might be first line in these patients. So what do you want to start off? Talking about uh, Divalprox sure. or lithium? Yeah, Depakote, that's fine. De okay. I mean, those two were, are really the, the two mainstays of therapy as far as first line treatment goes, the two mood stabilizers. Good deal. So, yeah, so lithium um, and also Depakote, those are the two uh, mainstays, just like Cole said. And um, those are the things that are going to be considered like our first-line agents to kind of stabilize uh, the patient's mood, making sure that they're not going back into um, a manic state. Now, um, Cole, do you have any of the literature pulled up as far as the comparative trials or... Uh, there's a lot of comparisons that you can just make generally based on the way um, that they act, their pharmacokinetic profile, their side effect profile. 
Um, so for instance, um, Depakote has a little bit of a faster onset of efficacy, maybe two to five days. Uh, lithiums is more around seven to 14 days as far as reaching its peak effect. Um, so that might be a consideration. Maybe if they're acutely manic, you want to use Depakote, um, to help them be more controlled, even though you'd probably also add on an antipsychotic. Um, but it just really depends. Their side effect profiles are very different. Um, Depakote, you're more concerned with um, the liver. Lithium, you're more concerned with the kidneys. That's just very generally speaking. Um, lithium also has a lot of drug interactions to be aware of. Um, drugs that can increase levels, drugs that can decrease levels. Um, the main thing to know is it's sim- drugs that may act on kidney function. So ACEs and ARBs, diuretics, especially thiazides, and NSAIDs can all increase lithium levels. Um, acetazolamide, theophylline, even caffeine can all decrease lithium levels. So those are a couple of considerations. Um, as far as um, monitoring, so you can get levels in both of these for both of these medications. Um, it's probably better to get a lithium level as far as looking for um, efficacy. So you can get a lithium level after five days of treatment. Um, you could get a Depakote level after three days of treatment, but there's really no reason to get a Depakote level unless you're concerned for the patient um, not taking the medication. You may just get a level to see if, hey, are they actually taking it? The lithium, you're actually monitoring to make sure that they are in a therapeutic range, right? Yeah. And um, the other thing is the, the lithium is typically... Um, I guess a little bit more of an adherence thing because you're taking it sometimes two to three times a day just starting off. Um, the Depakote does have two different formulations that I think get a little confusing, but yep. one of them being extended release ER um, is typically once a day. And so that's a little bit more convenient. Now where the confusing part is the Depakote also comes as a delayed release. So delayed release and extended release sound very similar. Uh, but delayed release is typically twice a day. So if you see the directions as written as twice a day and if they did not specify, you need to definitely be careful because there is instances where they will use Depakote ER twice a day, but um, the typical dosing, delayed release gets twice a day, uh, extended release ER gets once a day dosing. Yeah. And... Um... With lithium, I, I should mention things that you would probably want to monitor for, and this is based on their side effect profile. So with lithium, I mentioned renal function, so definitely want to look out for that. Also, um, monitor their electrolytes, specifically sodium, and thyroid function tests because it can have effects on the thyroid. With Depakote, I mentioned it can affect the liver, so get LFTs and uh, blood counts because it can actually cause thrombocytopenia. Um so those are things you'd want to look out for with those two, for sure. As far as the other mood stabilizer that you might consider um, would probably be carbamazepine. Um, very much more of a third-line agent, I would think. Um, it obviously, it just depends on the patient that you have. Uh, but you can add on antipsychotics to the mood stabilizer, um, second generations specifically, but you can also do first generations and you might do that before considering carbamazepine um, for monotherapy for, for a bipolar. But it really just depends on the patient, what they've tried, and you know what you feel comfortable using. 
And carbamazepine has a lot of the drug-drug interactions as well. Sure. So we'd have to consider that. Um, all right, so let's say we start them on either lithium or Davoprox. What's kind of our next step? Like, what, what, was, what are we going to use for adjunctive therapy? Right, so... Um, this is that would be more for a refractory patient. So some patients are okay with just Depakote or just lithium, and um, they're stable on that. And as long as the boat isn't rocked, then don't rock the boat, right? Uh, but some patients, they need a little bit more, especially if they were taking that, and then they wind up in the hospital uh, with an episode of mania. You may want to consider um, at least increasing the dose and maybe adding on an antipsychotic. So the options there are second generations, and um, first generation. So we won't like list off all of those medications, but um, a few that you might be familiar with with the second gens would be um, Seroquel, which is Ketiapine, Zyprexa, Olanzapine, Geodon, Ziprazidone, and maybe Risperdal, Risperidone. So those are all pretty common options that you can consider. And uh, first gens, commonly you would see maybe Haldol. Um, you might even see some Chlorpromazine, uh, Fluvenazine, and we're not going to get you know, into the weeds and all these medications. We'll save that for a different podcast, but those are definitely some options. And it depends on how the patient is presenting. Um, so with mania, those all can be used for mania. Um, and you can kind of mix them around, figure out what works best for this patient. Um, but if the patient's primary issue is bipolar depression, that's where it gets a little more hairy. So... Yeah, and the, the there are several studies too. Um, the big one that I uh, want to make sure we at least mention, since we mentioned quetiapine, uh, um, the Boulder one, Boulder two, they were testing the uh, efficacy of of quetiapine um, versus placebo in basically depressive episodes uh, in patients that have either bipolar type one or type two. Um, it was only an eight week long study but uh, include a little over 500 patients. And uh, they used the questionnaires like the HAMD, and there's one other one. Um, but they, uh, they use like the questionnaires to kind of judge um, or quantify, rather, um, depression and see if the patients also were uh, to go back into to mania. Um, the side effects that were typically... Uh, seen with quetiapine was uh, dry mouth, sedation, um, dizziness, things like that. So kind of mild. Obviously, uh, we do have to worry about QTC prolongation, things like that. Um, a little bit more rare, but still, if the patient has a lot of pre-existing conditions, then we would want to take those into account. Sure. Yeah, definitely stuff to consider. And before we get too far into the um, into the depression, I probably should have mentioned. Um, some class side effects. So second generations, more commonly uh, metabolic side effects. So weight gain, um, blood pressure issues. So you want to make sure to monitor and get baseline A1C lipids, um, blood pressure, maybe a fasting glucose as well. Um, with the first generations, because they act um, more potently on the that D2 receptor, they're more prone to um, EPS, which is extrapyramidal symptoms. Um, the three uh, common ones, or I guess the three only ones, would be dystonia, which is like muscle rigidity, uh, akesthesia, which is kind of the feeling of ants in your pants or anxiousness, and um, severe forms can present with um, like movement, involuntary movement of the legs, or even kind of the torso area. 
Um, there's also Parkinsonian symptoms. So you can have Parkinsonian symptoms from other medications. This is one of those. So you might see shuffling gait. Uh, you might see slow muscle movements. Um, you might see the um, scribbly handwriting. I'm blanking on what that word is, but those are some examples of things you might see uh, with patients who are showing those Parkinsonian symptoms. Generally, you can treat those uh, pretty easily with uh, benzotropine is really the most common that you can use that for dystonia and the pseudoparkinsonism um, that brand name is cogentin. You could also use Benadryl, so anticholinergics help with those. Um, for akesthesia, you could use propranolol. That's actually something that they use for akesthesia. You could also use a benzo like Ativan. Um, if these are considerable side effects, you may want to consider decreasing the dose, titrating slower, or even switching to a um, different antipsychotic, maybe a second generation. Um, the second generations can also cause those EPS side effects, but at a much lower rate than the first generation. So that's just a super brief overview of the side effects with um, the various antipsychotics. Yes. Um, another study to kind of bring up is the Prevail 1 and 2, um, and that looked at adding Latuda um, to patients who are already on either lithium or Dilaproex, um, and it was specifically in type 1 patients. Um, this, again, was, it was only six weeks long, so a short study, and uh, they used depression rating scales uh, questionnaires to kind of evaluate the, the level of depression these patients had. And then they, uh, they saw that uh, Latuda was, in fact, effective. Um, side effect was nausea, solemnness, tremor, um, insomnia. Those were all things that were uh, commonly seen. The big issue with that medication, the Latuda, is it's so expensive. Yeah. It's, I want to say, around $1,300. Yeah, I mean, just it depends on where you go. But, yeah, it's extremely expensive. But it does work well for bipolar depression, which we'll see um, is a considerable issue. So we have a lot of data saying that, yes, these antipsychotics and mood stabilizers work well for mania. We know that. Uh, what we've had trouble doing is finding medications that work well for bipolar depression. For unipolar depression, which would just be major depression, uh, we can use SSRIs, SNRIs, TCAs, you know, less preferably, uh, bupropion, mirtazapine, things like that. Uh, for the bipolar depression, um, there's actually kind of a landmark study called the STEP, S-T-E-P, BD trial, um, where basically they added on antidepressants to mood stabilizers in bipolar depression and pretty much showed that it didn't um, have any significant difference um, or significant effect on depression rating scores compared to placebo. So basically the antidepressants don't work for bipolar depression is what the conclusion that this study came to. Uh, they did only look at paroxetine and bupropion added on to either Depakote, which is um, Valparate, uh, lithium or carbamazepine, so the standard mood stabilizers, but just Paxil and Bupropion might not be the best representation of the antidepressants, but either way, at this point, antidepressants aren't really standard of therapy for bipolar depression, so one thing that you can consider um, is Lamotrigine. So Lamotrigine we don't use in, uh, in mania, uh, but it can be considered in bipolar depression. Um, there are a few other antipsychotics that we can consider. Um, Seroquel, ketiapine being one, it's shown benefit 
in um, depression, which we just saw in the PREVAIL trials, uh, Loracida and Latuda in the Boulder 1 and 2 study, and then a combination of olanzapine and fluoxetine. So that's really the only time you would see the SSRI for bipolar depression is when it's in combination with the antipsychotic, and the only combination um, med that we have for that is the olanzapine and fluoxetine. So bipolar depression, it's a, um, it's a difficult thing, especially when it's the primary issue, but at this point, that's what we would consider um, options added on to uh, lithium or Depakote, potentially, um, for bipolar depression. And I think, I'm not sure, but I don't, I don't think that carbamazepine is really um, going to be as prominent in bipolar depression if used at all. So I, th I think the focus is really on Depakote and, um, and lithium if you have a patient who has a lot of depression along with the mania. Right. Um, would you, have we talked about aripiprazole? No, no. So aripiprazole uh, is another option, especially for um, like ag um, adjunctive um, maintenance treatment. And uh, the issue with that is there is kind of inconsistent results uh, on the studies that have looked at that. And um, it does have uh, quite a bit of potential side effects, uh, tremor, um, hypertension, dry mouth, weight gain, uh, flu syndrome. Um, and so there's, there's definitely potential for side effects. It is a lot cheaper than it used to be, which is a plus. But um, there, there's one study that uh, was done over 100 weeks. It's a 100-week trial. Um, in the aripiprazole group, um, there was fewer recurrences um, compared to placebo as far as, um, I believe it was as far as mania. Um, but aripiprazole was shown compared to placebo to be more effective. Um, but the question is whether it's all that effective for adjunctive therapy if we needed to add on to uh, lithium. Right, right. So... Um, Speaking of aripiprazole, uh, the other thing to consider is the, the big news was the uh, long-acting injectable form. And so, you know, hopefully it help with uh, adherence um, compared to having to take it every single day as a tablet. Uh, but there is also a uh, new, um, I guess technology is the way to put it, uh, that went with Abilify. Um and it's called my site. This is kind of old news now, so you know I'm not bringing this up like um, for the first time. Hopefully, you've seen this, but uh, if you haven't, my site pill is is kind of like a smart tablet, if you will. Um, but you attach this uh, this sensor, this patch, uh, to yourself um, and on the abdomen, and then when you swallow the tablet, the sensor can tell if the tablet has actually been. Uh, swallowed and absorbed, and then it will report to your smartphone, which then um, will send it off to your, I guess, your psychiatrist to let them know that you actually took the medication. Yeah. So that's that's something that, uh, and Cole and I were talking about this before we started recording, but uh, adherence is such a huge issue with patients that are dealing with uh, you know, bipolar disorder and, and all kinds of different psych issues. But um, this is something that, you know, the person can't hide it, whether or not they, uh, you know, took the medication. So it's it's pretty interesting. I think a lot of people were a little freaked out when they saw something like this. They think it's a little, you know, big brother. But, yeah. you know, at the same time, if you're helping people who normally would uh, not be adherent because they're just not in the correct state of mind, 
then I think it's it's got it definitely has its place. Yeah, and I mean, it might seem a little bit Big Brother, but I mean, just from working with these patients, it's really what they need. I don't know how reasonable you know this is to get right now. Um, it apparently incorporates the patients using an app, using a patch, probably paying a lot of money to get it. Um, but it it points out the fact that, like you said, uh, adherence is a huge issue. That's why we have all these different types of dosage forms with antipsychotics. There's a lot of um, ODT or disintegrating tablets. There's a lot of long-acting injections. Um, they might call them DEX or DEPO injections. Um, and the reason is because pa- these patients don't like taking their medication. Um, and I should mention, because sometimes it can be because they um, have delusions about their medication. Um, there's It's sometimes hard to distinguish the difference between schizophrenia and bipolar. Um, if you had to have one, you'd probably want to have bipolar because the prognosis is ultimately better. Um, schizophrenia is usually characterized by a lot of um, hallucinations and delusions, which I meant to mention that you can have in bipolar. Um, it's just not the predominant symptom. So somebody might be diagnosed with bipolar type 1 with psychotic features. And so that would be one case where you would probably definitely want to use an antipsychotic um, to try to control those um, hallucinations and delusions. But uh, this is a really tough, tough um patient population the adherence rates are much lower than the general population the substance use is incredibly high in this patient population Uh, the suicide rate is the suicide attempt rate and completion rate is much higher i mean we could do a whole podcast on suicide which i think um, though morbid is an important topic for um, clinicians to be aware of Um, this is a tangent a psych-based tangent but a tangent nonetheless Um, just to um, ask your patients how their mood is when they come in. Um, you know, it's it seems weird to ask a patient if they have had thoughts about harming themselves or harming um, others, but it's an important thing to ask. When you have a patient with multiple disease states, um, whether they're elderly or not, but especially if they have depression, um, this is a significant issue in that patient population, and it really needs to be addressed early on before Um, it precipitates. We had patients uh, ranging from all walks of life, all ages, all disease states, some completely healthy, some with a lot of disease states that made legitimate suicide attempts, Um, planned attempts with guns, um, suffocation, uh, cutting, overdoses. Um, It was really hard to believe. And these these are people who uh, they just saw their primary care provider last week and they said, oh, you're a little more depressed. Well, um, let's switch your um, bupropion dose or let's give you uh, a different medication or something. And they feel hopeless because they've tried all these medications and they still don't want to live. So um, it really it starts with the family medicine primary care providers uh, to really be addressing psychological health to make sure that we get on top of that before it escalates to something worse. Right. And the other thing to consider um, when we're, we have to look at these patients, kind of their social, um, their social history, their economic history, um, looking at, uh, for instance, if a patient, uh, you know, becomes very hypersexual, um, when she's in a manic state, um, you know, we have to worry about potential pregnancies in patients like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we, val- valproic, uh, acid, um, diploproics is a category X, um, as far as 
contra- completely contraindicated with pregnancy. I believe lithium uh, is as well. So those, those kind of things we'd have to at least have in the back of our head um, and then look and see what we can do to maybe encourage contraceptive abuse or however we need to handle that. Right. And I think lithium might be category D either way, um, which I guess we're not actually supposed to use categories anymore, right? That, they kind of did away with that. Either no, way. But everyone, they haven't fully gotten rid of right. the categories for the older drugs, right. so I still like to use them. Yes. No, I, th- I think <laughs> that it's it's at least a good way to give you an idea of what we're talking about. But um, I know uh, I've heard from multiple um, uh, pharmacists and even some clinicians that they wouldn't even consider Depakote in a, pa- in a female who's of childbearing age because the... Um, the category, the, um, the pregnancy risk is that significant, even if they have signed a pledge to use contraception and they're not interested in getting pregnant, all that kind of stuff, just consider something else. There's other options. And, um, this could also be included more in a drug based, um, psych podcast, but treating pregnancy, um, or treating bipolar in patients who are pregnant is incredibly difficult because most all of these medications cause, um, harm to um, a a baby, a, um, a potentially a pregnant woman, and are very um, teratogenic. So it's difficult to uh, address these issues. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's tough. Definitely. Um, what about uh, benzo use? Did you see much of that when you were? Yeah. Um, so I was specifically on the addictions unit. So obviously we were really. Um, pretty hard on not sending patients out on benzos if we didn't have to just because of how high risk they were. Most of them were there because this was a crisis stabilization unit. So they have either promoted or endorsed SI, uh, which is suicidal ideation, or they have actually had an active suicide attempt. Um, So yeah, we didn't really use it very much in those patients. And generally, I think the idea is to avoid them um, the, you should be able, or hopefully you, you want to be able to get them stable on their mood stabilizer and their antipsychotic. Um, but some patients are just so labile, um, and, uh, or might, are essentially a danger to themselves or others that, yeah, you, you may have to consider it in certain patient populations for sure. Yeah. All right. Anything else that we didn't cover as far as some of the common treatment options? Oh, I'm sure we missed a lot of stuff, so don't email us. But like we said, this was a um, a cursory overview. We'll go more in depth at some point. I did want to mention, you mentioned um, risky sexual behavior with mania. We didn't talk too much um, about how to identify mania in general, but um, just a few of the DSM-5 criteria would be um, uh, lack of sleep or a decreased need for sleep. So they might be getting two hours of sleep a night, but they still feel great. Um, mania that would happen for like seven days hypomania maybe four days um, and that's a really easy one to ask them um man a whole nother podcast would be um, substance induced mood disorder so sometimes it's hard to delineate so if a patient has been using cocaine or meth daily for the last six years of course they're going to have decreased need for sleep for multiple days at a time because they are hyped up on cocaine or meth so you kind of have to tease out, okay, have you had a period of sobriety? Well, yeah, I was actually at a treatment facility for one year and I was sober. Okay, great. During that year of sobriety, did you have these signs of mania? Did you have these signs of depression? So it's very hard to tease out. I digress. We can talk about that at another time. Um, but decreased need for sleep is a big one. Risky sexual behavior. Um, uh, ideas of grandeur is another one. Um, risky behavior in general, so gambling can also be an example, but 
um, escalating behavior sometimes. We had a patient who didn't drink at all um, on their, as the mania began, they started to drink one or two beers a day. And by the time they're admitted, they're drinking like 12 beers a day. Um, so their behavior might escalate in that way. And uh, it, it presents differently with different people. They'll have uh, rapid speech that you can't really interrupt. Um, they won't be linear um, as they'll be talking. They'll essentially go on tangents um, and then they won't return back to the topic at hand sort of thing. So um, if you've seen somebody who's manic, you, you know what it looks like pretty much. But there are specific criteria to say, yep, this person's manic. They've been manic for this long. And um, we will diagnose them with true bipolar one disorder, you know, something like that. Yeah. Good deal. So to, I guess to kind of recap, um, you know, typically the maintenance meds, we will uh, start off with either lithium or Devil Pro X. Um, and then as far as add-ons, um, could be Seroquel, could be Lamotrigine, uh, one of our other second generation antipsychotics like Olanzapine, Risperidone, uh, and then we can go and do um, some of the others like carbamazepine, um, the uh, Latuda, even though it's expensive. I guess that would technically be second line. Right. Well, you would. You, so you would be thinking Latuda more for bipolar depression. You'd be thinking Lamotrigine more for depression. You'd be thinking carbamazepine more for mania. So they're all gotcha. generally used for bipolar. Uh, but it really, I mean, you got it. The patients are just so different, and they present so different. You have to treat essentially their symptoms specifically. Good stuff. I'm learning today too. This is good. I'm glad Cole had a uh, psych rotation. I yeah. can live vicariously through him. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I would want to be a um, psych pharmacist my whole life. It's a tough patient population to work with. Uh, but one thing I can say is that whenever a patient would start on a new medication, man, we counseled them. Like, you know, we went through, um, everything with them um, to make sure that they had a really good grasp on it we had them teach teach us back and um, stuff that you don't always get to do in the hospital because sometimes you're starting people on 12 medications and they're going out so yeah but I think we will definitely return to psych topics for sure there's just a whole bunch more to cover yeah for sure a whole bunch so anything else in closing no I don't think so. All I can say is my uh, PSA about asking people about their mood. Just ask them, see how they're doing. Make sure that depression or suicidal ideation um, is not a concern for sure. Good deal. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, make sure that if you have any questions, uh, send us an email, mcorvino at coreconsultrx.com. Uh, hit us up on any of the social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, Medium, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we are now on Spotify as well. So if you are normally listening to iTunes, but you just really wish we were on Spotify, now we are. Mm-hmm. And Spotify apparently went public with their stock t- today or yesterday. They didn't even ask me about that. I know. You're you're basically a co-owner. How are they not yeah, consulting I, with you? I so, don't know. Who knows? Maybe you should get on in on some Spotify stock. Maybe. Yeah. I'll just leave my podcast on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to rise because we're on there. That's the whole point. So yeah. buy Spotify stock. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy because that was the hardest one to break. I, um, I thought, you know, iHeartRadio took me some time, but I, it took us, what, Three months, four yeah. months of trying to get on Spotify. I'm sure they have so many requests, though. It's not like they looked at us and were like, Oop, losers, you know, no. get them off of there. They, they genuinely felt bad about not accepting <laughs> us the first 50 times. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we're on there now. So I think that's all the major 
like platforms. Yeah. If um, there's if you there's a platform that you listen to podcasts on and you're like, wait a minute, what the heck, Mike? You're not on here. Let us know. Yes. Send us a message. Ask us questions. If you want to be a guest on the show, let us know as well. And mm-hmm. we'll uh, have you on. But yes, until next time, we will see you guys later. Have a good one. Thank <laughs> you.